This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day Diplomates fans, I'm Misha. This week, with so much going on in the world, I had my good friend Hagar Shamali back for a chinwag about literally almost everything. Now we start, it's a long conversation, we start talking about whether or not there's a new Cold War going on, we talk about Xi Jinping visiting Vladimir Putin in Moscow and what that means. We talk about Kashida visiting Zelensky in Kiev at the exact same time and that unbelievable image of two democracies and two autocracies literally staring down one another across the border. Talk about whether or not Donald Trump's going to get arrested. Talk about China's involvement in the Middle East and what this peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran means and whether or not it's legitimately something to worry about. Talk about Israel. What's happening there? These huge protests, Bibi Netanyahu, and what's happening with the, the Supreme Court in Israel. We also talk about deep fakes, the fact that the Pope was involved in one and a number of other things, but also, believe it or not, daylight saving in Lebanon gets a run. So, lots to talk about. If you are enjoying the show or you're new to the show and you haven't done this, please rate, review, and share the episode with your friends. It really does help. Uh, it helps us gain the algorithm a little and thank you to everyone who continues to support the show it's doing really well as always so i really do appreciate those of you who are long-term listeners uh, and are always giving me amazing feedback so thank you so much we've got a new column in the afr this week check that out otherwise enjoy the episode Hagar, welcome back to diplomate so good to see you mate so good to see you misha thank you for having me now, it's always a long time between our conversations, and as we always know, so much has happened around the world. Uh, I'm always like, oh, we need to talk about that, and by the time it rolls around, I'm like, well, how relevant is it anymore? It's impossible. Like, yeah, foreign affairs seems to be going at a crazy pace uh, in the last few years in particular. Anyway, but place I thought we could start, and it's a place near to both our hearts, is Ukraine, but particularly Russia, Ukraine, Xi Jinping and uh, Prime Minister Kishida from Tokyo, uh, from, from Japan rather. So uh, you've got this sort of really interesting visit. So Xi Jinping goes to visit Putin. Putin's desperate to get him along because he hasn't had really anyone visit him apart from people that he's got the jackboot on, like the Belarusian president, so-called President Lukashenko, very isolated, so he's really desperate for the legitimacy of Xi coming to visit him. But at the exact same time, the Ukrainian stage of visit by Japanese Prime Minister Kishida to come visit Zelensky in Kiev, and that's the first time a Japanese leader uh, has ventured into a war zone really since World War Two. So, and it was the last G seven leader to visit uh, visit Zelensky in Ukraine. So, let's talk about this visit. Let's talk about Xi. In, in Moscow, but generally also keen for your views about that contrasting image because in many ways to me that that image sums up where the world's at right now, dividing itself into blocks between you know, the old West plus uh, a few others and the Dictators Club. You know, how are you seeing that visit in that broader context? Yeah, it's a really it's a really crazy image, right? I mean, folks like us who who work in foreign policy and it's a it's it's a scary time and it's it's an ominous sign but it's also a chance to really geek out on this stuff because it's like watching 
all of this history play out in front of you and we kind of can see what's happening or what's to come. And that, like you said, that image of having President Xi in Moscow toasting to his dear friend and on top of it, by the way, in the room that former U.S. President Reagan toasted former Russian President Gorbachev and uh, in the same exact room, right? And so to have that all these years later between President Xi and President Putin, I to me felt very poetic in a bad way, right? Like we've come full well, circle on the wrong. That's right. Putin doesn't do these things by accident either, mm. so I wouldn't be surprised. In, in a way that's a message, Rob. Anyway, keep going, not to cut you off. No, I think, you're, I think you're completely right about that. I mean, he always is like that. He's, he likes to think of these small symbol, symbols and, and signs and things like that. So I agree with you. I think that that was by design. And then a day later to have Japan's leader in Ukraine, in a, in a, in a, in an active war zone and to pledge more military assistance and a significant amount. I think it was 5.5 billion uh, US dollars. And his statement that he said, I believe, and I don't want to mangle this quote, but that what's happening in Ukraine could happen in, in Asia. And yeah, next East Asia. For mm, now, Ukraine, next East Asia yeah. is a question mark, basically, right? Um, yeah. Mm. And it gives you real insight into well, how he views things. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it gives you, it gives you insight into how he views things that, and what his concerns are. And, and all of this, and I want to expand it a little bit even more, if you don't mind. So you've got this, these two things happening at the same time and kind of the divisions naturally falling. The relationship between Russia and China, this is not new. I mean, they've been friends since the Cold War ended. They've only continued to renew that friendship as time has worn on, um, as we're on, but, but it's grown increasingly close recently. And you've got increasing trade ties and so on. But Putin's behavior toward Ukraine is not necessarily something that she likes. And so you, you sometimes have to wonder, well, what, why is he really hitching his tail to this wagon. What does he see in it that's so much, so much for him aside from cheap oil? And when you, when you look at the quotes that came out of that meeting and how much of it explicitly focused on pushing back on the United States, I mean, it was, it was explicit. The quotes were right. without saying it verbatim. It was something along the lines of pushing back on American efforts to undermine global strategy strategic stability and national security. And, you know, so they're being very explicit in pushing back on that and having this bromance to do that. But it also comes at a time when the U.S. is, their policy toward China, our policy, the U.S. policy toward China, is becoming more tense and tougher. So you've got uh, bans on, on shipments of uh, for semiconductor technology and other technology that is perceived to either help China's economy or technology or something that, you know, that they could use that would end up posing a national security threat to the United States or elsewhere. So that's one. You have obviously continued discussions on TikTok and China's use of TikTok, the threats that that poses, and they view discussion here in the United States about banning TikTok and, um, or selling TikTok as an effort, again, to hit at China's economy. And then you have a very obvious U.S. effort to expand its global military presence in the region. You have uh, 
agreements to boost the military and support the military in Japan. You have the defense secretary who said that the U.S. would support the air bases in the Philippines more. And obviously, where you're sitting, you have the the uh, nuclear submarines that are that are going to be coming soon. And so that's a way of, for the U.S. to increase its presence without actually putting its troops somewhere. And so you start to feel these tensions really grow further. And, and at the same time, you have China trying to play global power broker. I mean, I know I'm going all over the world, right? So China brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And we'll get into that later, but I'm painting this bigger picture because right. to me, it's very, it's, it's when you take a step back and you look at the 60,000 foot level about what each side is doing, all the players, all these chess pieces that are moving. It's, right. it's hard not to compare to the Cold War. I know experts really don't like to do that because there are differences. But, um, and that it's actually more complicated, unfortunately. It is because we've, <laughs> we've it, I would say, I would say it's even more risky. Um, and right. yeah, it's way more risky. But yes, you do have trade, for example, between the United States and China is still very strong. And that was not the case between the, U the United States and Soviets during mm -hmm. the Cold War. So I understand there are differences, but I also don't think we should underestimate where this could head, this kind of division. Look, I, I agree. I actually think the systems competition is just as intense now. Um, I mean, no one ever truly declared a Cold War. Uh, it just sort of happened, right? And you look back and you realise you're in mm -hmm. one. I think we are in one and we're going to look back and realise that, uh, yes, Putin's invasion of Ukraine was a bit of a trigger point in uh, kinetic warfare, but we were already down this path, this ideological competition uh for at least half a decade before that, in my opinion. And and as you said, look, you look at the readout of what uh, Putin and Xi said in Moscow, but they've been saying this for years. I mean, Putin's been talking about, you know, US hegemony, hegemony uh, and, uh, you know, encroachment, China saying the same thing, long struggle, ideological struggle with the West. You know, I always say, look, don't believe me, you don't have to believe me or listen to me. People think that I'm a, a China hawk or that I'm a, you know, I'm somehow advocating that we have war against any of these countries. Listen to them, listen to these regimes and see what they're saying and how they view the world. And uh, this outward reaching uh, authoritarianism that's linking up around the world, as you sort of put it, is a concern. Uh, look, with Xi, it's a tricky one, right? Because I wrote a column about this that I don't think they'll send weapons because the Economic risks are too great. Uh, weapons to Russia, that is, Chinese weapons to Russia. The economic risks are too great. Putin um, needs the weapons, but she needs economic growth. Mm -hmm, I agree with and you. And so the risk of sanctions are enormously damaging. You saw what the protests were like uh, in China when she had enforced his policy of zero COVID for too long and the economic and social costs rose to such a level that people started to protest so he needs growth. He needs a growth story. That's central to the legitimacy. So he's trying to sort of navigate this whole, how do I get through this tricky period with Putin where he's caused this enormous disaster uh, in Ukraine? Uh, at the same time, I don't want to lose this guy as an ally who is a predictable ally pushing back against the United States, the EU and the, the West or however you want to frame it democratic nations um, because if if Putin were to be removed what comes next is completely unpredictable 
Now, I think it's unlikely to be a democracy, but maybe they decide, you know what, we want to withdraw uh, from, you know, we, we want to have an isolationist policy. Who knows, right? It's, it's um, Right now, would they be as forward-leaning, anti-West as Putin is? Perhaps not. Maybe they'd be worse, but we don't know that. So, you know, Putin right now seeing the better the devil I know, but... Oh, sorry, she's thinking about Putin better, the devil I know, quite literal devil. But I think it's tricky because Putin, as much as they're bros and they've got this uh, you know, friendship of no limits partnership uh, that they signed in February of last year, uh, Putin's gone and breached this kind of core tenet of CCP foreign policy, which is the preservation of, of sovereign borders, which is the way that they argue that Taiwan belongs to mainland China. So it's an awkward problem for them, right? Mm -hmm. Putin's gone Mm -hmm. and violated borders, which is, they say, the inviolable policy of the world and and China. And so it's really tricky and I I think it's going to get worse for them uh, because the more they help, the more they own Putin's war crimes in Ukraine, So the more she owns them. So... How he navigates this, I don't know. Um, and that's why, you know, I wrote about this on the one-year mark of the war that I think Putin's in a lot of trouble economically, militarily, politically, and a major reversal on the battlefield um, through, uh, I think, a Ukrainian, if the Ukrainians punch through somewhere like they did in September on a counteroffensive in the next month or two, I think that would be a big problem. Uh, for Putin and as a result, a problem for Xi. So, you know, it's sort of we always look at it as how we position against uh, China and Russia, Iran and the other dictators around the world, but they've got problems of their own. What do you think? That's a long wind-up. No, you know, it's it's just the thing that um, that I find the most interesting is your point about Putin's gaffes. There are these mistakes that there is no way President Xi sees them and doesn't think that these are mistakes. Mm. And wow. and you know what? So for their friendship, it's 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 one thing. There's there's an opportunity to stick it to the United States. Fine, um, that's obvious. And um, but but sometimes I think about what's President Xi thinking when you know. Putin is not on, I'm not trying, I don't want to like inflate egos here, but Putin is not on Xi's level when it comes to strategic thinking. And um, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've always said Putin, this nonsense that Putin's some kind of 3D chess player right. is a nonsense trope that got de- developed in the West over the last 10 to 20 years that he's like, all these moves ahead of us. He's actually a gambler. Yeah. He, goes, he goes all in all the time. And on this one, uh, on the Ukraine gambit, he was hoping that it would uh, be resolved in a day or two or three at the most. Turns out it's turned into a over-year now long quagmire. And so the, it came up double zero for him yeah. on this gambit. Oh, my God. It, and, uh, <laughs> so many mistakes. And so – and and – the result in having a tighter alliance and a and a larger NATO. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what Putin had yeah, had right. intended. So, right. so many wrong moves. And the way China, the way the Chinese Communist Party operates, the way President Xi operates, this view of the long game, playing the long game, and kind of working slower to to 
plant these seeds and and expand mm. influence and um uh, and and the debt for diplomacy traps that China does for example and that yeah. by the way that is exactly why I don't think that that the Chinese government would be so dumb to give lethal aid to the Russian government right. because they derive their power from from their economy and they will right. hurt their own economy which is already hurting after the pandemic so why would they want to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. You know, she's not that dumb. <laughs> He's not dumb, actually. And so, unlike Putin. But, you know, I try to, th- I, it's, it does give me concern for the, you know, the international world order uh, in a post-invasion, post-Ukraine invasion world. And to see the divisions. And the thing that I will tell you that I am seeing here in the United States more and more and I could be wrong. It just, maybe it just happens to be the last few articles I've read, last few people I've interviewed and touched base with. But there seems we are now seeing a Biden administration that is tougher than the Obama administration was when it comes to dealing with these threats, when it comes to dealing with China and Russia, not so much Iran, but with China and Russia specifically. And, and I'm starting to hear real experts, professors, columnists, so on, talk about, well, maybe it's too much. Maybe China, China's reacting to us and our efforts. And, and I'm going to be completely honest with you here. I have a very, I have like, like zero COVID, I have zero tolerance for dictators and authoritarians. Me too, yeah, and Me too. Anyone who's listened to this podcast or read my columns would know that. So I completely agree. Yeah. And I just, so I, I don't believe, and I've never believed it. And having handled Syria in particular in the government for a long time in the US government, right. I've never believed that you deal with dictators the way you deal with democracies. It just doesn't make sense. Right. You can't because they're not going to deal with you that way. And no, that's right. And look, Putin's a perfect example of bad behavior tolerated only leads to worse behavior. Right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, look, I get the temptation. Look, the, all the pe- people, we all want peace, right? I don't want to be in this situation. No one wants to be in this situation. I really wish peaceful rise happened with China. I wish Putin wasn't a lunatic. <laughs> Uh, it'd be, the world would be much easier and I could just worry about the football or something, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, uh, I wish it not were, you know, I wish it wasn't true either, but ignoring it for the last 20 years has only made it worse. Exactly. And I, I just think that nonsense of, oh, well, the only country in the world essentially that has agency is the United States and everyone responds to the United States in some way is just such a kind of nonsense view of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really kind of like a Noam Chomsky sort of nonsense kind of leftist view, also increasingly the right isolationist view. Um, and it just doesn't bear out the truth, which is at the end of the day, the world has done a lot to accommodate a rising China and uh, the United States has been at the centre of that. Oh, of course. You know, Nixon we built went to this. China. <laughs> Bill Clinton got them into the World Trade Organization with a bunch of promises and and, with favored status, most favored status. Yes. And I stand up to domestic US interests, including trade unions and others saying we shouldn't do this. Uh, Frankly, uh, well, George Bush, I think, helped divert U.S. attention to the Middle East as a result of 9-11 and took their eye off the prize there for a long time. And then, uh, you know, we talk about Obama, but 
Obama had a pivot, but he kept getting distracted by, I think, um, again, Middle East politics because mm. he obviously tried to get out, but then we had the rise of ISIS. But uh, looked the other way in many ways and kept trying to encourage the best instincts of Xi uh, and hoping that, you know, he could be trusted, which in the end he's proven not to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't militarise these islands. Well, then he did. I'll stop stealing IP. Well, he hasn't. And uh, the bad behaviour has gotten worse and worse. So, look, at the end of the day, the policies we're seeing, they all might all feel compressed. I think people are saying, oh, wow, look at all these things that we're doing. They're all compressed. They're actually catching up 20-year lag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Right? And, like, you know, those of us have been watching these things with concern, saying, are we going to wake up? Well, we have woken up. And so the action's being taken. Um, yeah. When we project weakness, that's when yeah. Russia and China interfere in our elections. That's when they hack. Right. That's when these are real. Right. This is not a joke. You're talking about threats to democracy, threats to sow division. Right. And that's when we were pursuing weaker policies. So people have a quick, right. quick, they just, they forget quickly. And mm. I think that in the United States in particular, you have a fear that's growing a little bit. People are, they're understanding more and more the threat from China because they're seeing it and they're hearing about it more. And, and so now I'm seeing a little bit, this reticence, you know, maybe, well, maybe we're the ones provoking them. Maybe, maybe this is in reaction to U S policy. And I agree with you. First of all, it's extremely U S centric and that's very American. But second of all, it's just, it's a, it's, it's a lack of understanding of how dictators function. Um, It just, we're making it harder right now for dictators to pursue their nefarious goals. And that is a good thing, but it's risk. It's, it's, it increases tensions for sure. Now we've got a deep dive there, more deeper than we usually would, but it was just, uh, I think an interesting discussion, but dictators want to be dictators. Donald Trump, (laughs) uh, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, but uh, look, former President Trump, he's running for president. A little over a week or two ago, he starts tweeting that he's about to get arrested. Of course, it doesn't happen, Mm -hmm. but nevertheless, where's this all at right now? Because he's got a myriad of legal problems. Uh, The rest that he was talking about related to the so-called hush money payment made by Michael Cohen, his lawyer, who's actually in jail, uh, or, or went to jail. Perhaps he's not in jail That's anymore. Right. But, he went to jail um, and he was released and now he's got like a podcast and a book and like you name it. <laughs> crazy. Anyway, uh, but yeah, he allegedly paid off this porn star that Trump had an affair with, which was in breach of uh, US disclosure laws and, and uh, election funding laws. But, of course, he's got uh, the January 6th investigation with the special prosecutor. He's got the fact that he had potentially nuclear codes hidden in a poorly locked room in Mar-a-Lago from when he was president. And, of course, he's also got a special grand jury investigation into in Georgia into his interference pressuring electoral officials, officials there. Uh, How did you summarize all that? I don't think I would have remembered <laughs> all of those legal cases oh. and summarized them so well. <laughs> well, you know, uh, uh, Trump said a special interest to this podcast, but <laughs> I suppose like where's this at? And then also let's dig into the politics of it a bit because I worry about, look, it's, it's hard to know, right? Because on the one hand, prosecuting a former president is a dangerous thing to be doing. 
the same time, normative behavior should only extend to someone who observes normative behavior, right? So, yeah, Richard Nixon got pardoned, but Richard Nixon then basically went away, right, and, and didn't try to stage a coup. Uh, Donald Trump has observed zero domestic U.S. political conventions um, that are critical to the operations of a democracy. So is he entitled to them? What worries me about the potential rest for uh, Donald Trump on this particular charge, i.e. the funding, you know, paying off of a porn star that he'd had an affair with, is that the one to be arresting him on? It just strikes me that that might pollute the broader case against him, which is he tried to intervene in an election, tried to pressure a Georgia election official to find 11,000 votes from however many it was. I think it was around 11,000. Um, or was it 16? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, and he staged or fomented an attempted coup on January 6th um, at the US Capitol. So what do you think about all that? I mean, I, I don't know the answer there, but mm-hmm. I worry about it. You know, it's interesting. So I wasn't following this very closely when he announced. Um, I go in waves of Trump news. And right. and so when he announced, uh, I was on vacation actually. And, and my dad was like, so do you think this arrest is... Um, is actually going to happen. And I was like, I'm not following this, but there's no way that that he's actually getting arrested right now. What's this about? And when I saw that it was, because I was thinking the same thing, what of all, which, which legal case is it that's going to put this man behind bars apparently? And when I saw it was the hush money, I was just like, I just don't know if I believe this. And I mean, maybe could it, I guess, uh, I guess I'm not a legal expert, but he was- Well, Rolling Stone had a story that was backgrounding um, I th- presumably the New York prosecutor's office, but also Trump's own legal team that allegedly says that he's been told it's a strong case and he should expect one to four years in prison. Yeah. <laughs> I, but that's, I mean, but like, I, that's, I mean. I laugh because Michael Cohen spent Stone. months in prison maybe, right? Like I should get the actual number, but he was released pretty quickly. And he's right. the one who did the payment and pleaded guilty. And right. um and um, again, I'm not saying that it's not possible. It could totally be possible. I don't think it helps the case for American mm. democracy. That's for sure. Right. Not that, again, nothing to say on whether he should or shouldn't be. You know, that's for the law and for the jury and for them to figure that out. But um, given, like you said, all those other cases and what he was involved in and the the message that you want to convey to the public, <laughs> you know, if and the thing is that that's not just not how the justice system works, right? It's not like they gather the, all of the cases and think like, you know what? No. Let's not let's not die on this hill with Stormy Daniels. Let's do the bit. Let's let's go after the bigger fish. They just don't do it like that. So the other stuff could come later or not. But the thing is, what what was very disappointing in this whole thing and frustrating is that is how he played everybody and played the news and made it all about him and made a huge fundraising effort out of it all over again. It, it almost feels yeah. like no matter what we do, we are all living in Donald Trump's world. And that's frustrating yeah. after he was voted it out. It's like you're gone. Stop. He's a master. What, what thing he he's – look, Trump's always been a self-promoter, right? Mm-hmm. He took over news cycles. And then what he's – with this story, right? Like, but, but but he he is a master of communications and self promotion. 
What he has then done is fuse this with politics and understanding the attention power that being president or, you know, when he was president, now formerly president, those two things are fused together into this. He knows that people will never look away from him. And, like, he's such a weird unit in that, like, he's such a, like, such a, like a, like a, warped mirror of an individual, right? <laughs> so his own, like, kind of, like, narcissism. Like, I don't actually believe he's a, an authoritarian. What he is is a grievance guy who feels he's been somehow done over and has whipped this thing into, like, being – it's not about – there's no agenda, really, other than Donald Trump's uh, restitution and, re, you know, he just wants to be – somehow beat his enemies. It's not really about any true – you know what I mean? Like there's no underpinning ideology, right? No, but I do think that he had a goal. I mean, and I think that it was to show everyone how loved he is, how important he thinks he is because well, right. because he was in, he was inciting his followers to go protest. Right. And right. and so, you know, to cause chaos and to voice support for him. And then I do think he knew that he, because I do think he was posturing and I don't think he, he was actually going to get arrested on a Tuesday. I think that he knew he could use this to, to galvanize support and to ask for, for donations and to put himself back out there. And I will, you know, I'll add one last, one interesting, fascinating insight into this. I just learned. Um, so I teach a course at Columbia University and I was at a dinner of professors and, you know, professors and everybody's opining, but one, one um, of the professors who has extensive experience in polling and in this world and in posturing on, you know, predicting what's going to happen in American politics, he 100% believes that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. And I was surprised by that. And But when he said that, I was like, you know, Trump is certainly acting like it. And so then that's his goal. He still views himself that way. And so he's going to look at every opportunity to to show the U.S. press to show the U.S. public, look how much support I have. If you dare come after me, I have all these people who are going to have my back and we could cause a civil war, which by the way, I, I completely reject that notion because we have a military who would prevent that, that would prevent that, but that's a separate story. Um, and I'm going to use this to take over the media again, and I'm going to use it for fundraising. And mm. that's what is, I find extremely frustrating is that Maybe he's not gone. Maybe, you know, maybe he will be the nominee. I don't know if I agree with this professor's assertion. I did find it fascinating, though, because that professor knows a lot more about this than me. And for him to say that, I yeah, thought it was shocking. Look, I mean, look, I, I still think he probably won't be the nominee, but the fact that he's even maybe a nominee when you consider Ugh. all the baggage he has, like it's... it's Very un-American. But, you know, look, I mean, not to lecture are you the United States about its domestic politics or election of the Republican Party, but just the way that they continued, despite having opportunities to go stacks on on this guy, the, the ability, this notion that cynical politicians in the Republican Party believe that there's some way that they can accommodate, they can kill Donald Trump politically and then seize his supporter base it's never going to happen. No. <laughs> like he has to be, like, you know, right. what I mean? and, and that has been their driving force the whole way along is that they're like, right, he's got this sort of 20 or 30%. So how do I grab that? Stop thinking like that, 
right? Like if they actually just went full court press on him and and had the battle, it, it would perhaps not be great for them electorally in the near term, but in the end it would, you know, stamp out this growing cancer in their own party. But, you know, Evil only requires good people to do nothing, and unfortunately that's what's happened in the Republican Party. A lot of my friends that are Republicans have left the party, which I think is a really bad thing rather than stay mm. to fight, and all the others are quiet. All of mine too. All of my Republican friends, well, most of my Republican friends left. Um, I live in Connecticut just outside New York, so Republicans in Connecticut are a bit different. Um, they were all very George Bush type, you know, Reagan type, mm. completely that's different type of Republican. Republican. They're all independents mm. now. Yeah, I know, but unfortunately, uh, it just doesn't. There's um, no fight in the party. It gets no, seized, look, it gets hijacked. Well, right, mm-hmm. and then yeah. Anyway, look, I mean, we can uh, we can opine over this a long time, but I, I, I share your concern that it doesn't necessarily help um, if he was to be arrested uh, for that particular charge. If there are other more serious ones, then I, I'd be sort of interested in that. Now, uh, shifty, you mentioned Saudis. The Iranians, China. So out of nowhere, out of nowhere, we get this announcement that Xi Jinping uh, has brokered a peace agreement between Saudi Arabia and Iran and suddenly entered into the world of geopolitics in the Middle East, which has really been, well, it's a preserve of great powers, right? Uh, You look at history of it, once upon a time, the French and the Brits were in there. Then it became the Russians and the Americans or the Soviets and the Americans and now the Russians and the Americans and now China. So what, what do you make it? I'm not an expert in the Middle East, so I'm curious for your take on this. What does this all mean? Mm. And uh, what, what, what do you, going back to our beginning of this, that long conversation we had, how do you see that playing into this global you know, game of chess? So on one hand, you know, when I first saw this news, I was maybe incredulous is the word I'm looking for, because I just kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. Like, of course, this is what, this is the type of peace deal you would go for because it's something that China could broker much. The U.S. would not be able to broker this because we have zero relationship with Iran and our own relationship with Iran needs brokering. So, so, um, and I would argue it doesn't need brokering with this regime anyway. So um, that said, China picked something where there's a vacuum. And where they have a unique ability to do this because they have trade relationships with both countries. So they have a relationship with both. They've got diplomatic relationship, trade relationship. And I think this is part of China's effort to show, to stick it to the United States, to show where they could be successful in a peace deal. Um, and I know peace deal is, is a strong word. It's really restoring diplomatic relationships and exploring possible economic relationships and, um, and others. I mean, they said that they might cooperate on counterterrorism and, and money laundering, but I find that laughable since they, they work against each other in those, in those worlds. But, um, listen, and, and I don't want to sound like the Biden administration here, but I just want to put a caveat for peace that like, hey, if this actually works out and it were to lead to, to a genuine peace in Yemen and genuine solving, solve, solving the problems in Iraq and in Lebanon, uh, and Syria, then great. I just have zero belief that will happen. And, um, and, and that's just because these, these issues are so deep rooted, so historical. So sectarian that 
I just don't see this opportunity. And listen, and I, and, and, and somebody could tell me like, well, hey, did you, would you ever think that, that the UAE and Israel would make a deal and the Bahrain and Israel and so on? And, or that the Saudis, they don't have a deal with Israel, but they certainly work with the Israelis. Um, and the answer to that is yeah, because they have a common enemy. Saudi Arabia and Iran don't have a common enemy. Um, right. this is about taking a problem off the table. And I just don't think they're going to achieve it. I really don't. I don't want to be pessimistic. They're almost natural enemies, right? They're natural the, enemies. The I mean, they have been forever. The Sunni, divide. <laughs> the Sunni Shia divide is the kind of the principal thing that outside of the Israel question is what drives Middle East politics, right? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't, again, I don't want to I be mean, pessimistic. It's, it's hard not to, I mean, and the Middle East of all issues is the one I worked on the most. And as you know, my family is right. Middle Eastern. Um, right. I would, again, if it were to work, then great. Awesome. Like yeah. amazing. Yeah. But they're, they're, the problem is that no matter what they're going to try to do, their, their divisions, they're each funding different sides of of, of militias fighting each other or terrorist groups or, you know, governments fighting militias. I mean, they're each funding and arming different sides. And so that is going to continuously come up in the middle of, of all this. And we know already that, uh, we know Saudi Arabia's, uh, we know what their policies are to boost its own economy, to diversify away from oil, to, uh, to push back against Iranian expanding influence across the region. And I just don't see how that changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Out of the hold. Yeah, yeah it, it, it definitely feels they've got divergent interests and will continue to have it. I mean, look. I, and Iran too, the by the way. In- Iran's foreign policy is right. not about to change. That, I mean, right. where where their effort is to sow dissent and so dis, um, and to destabilize the Middle East and to spread influence right. across the Middle East. And, and um, yeah, that's not about to change. There's no way. Right. I uh, hope, look, I but think, it's not going to happen. Think, look, I mean – I hate to be a cynic. If I was being cynical, this is really about China's interest in Xi Jinping being seen to be a, a global statesman, yeah, particularly, <laughs> as, but, uh, particularly he as he's got all this, right, but they've got all this uh, this Putin-Ukraine baggage, right? So, oh, well, look at us. We're breaking peace deals. We've got this 10-point peace plan in Ukraine. Let's put that in quotes, I, I, peace plan in like quotes. Feels, right. Right, but it feels like window dressing that they're trying desperately to restore their image. But I would say, good luck. Um, I'm not sure that that's likely to happen, given uh, you know five years at least of wolf warrior, uh, yeah, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy under Xi Jinping. Yeah, China now, is not after this. They're not the new. You see this a lot in the U.S. Like, is China the new global power broker? And I'm like, no, no, they're not. Please. They're trying to project that image, but it's very obvious that, like you said, the peace plan is window dressing. Um, this this right. pe- this plan between Saudi Arabia and Iran was an easy one for them, and uh, I just don't think it'll stick uh, at all. Yeah. No. Now, sticking with the Middle East. Your area of expertise. Israel Oof. has been going through huge civil unrest. Uh, they had an election not so long ago. Most unbelievably, Bibi Netanyahu came back to power. Talk about politicians with scandals being untouchable. Um, bribery allegations involving, oddly enough, an Australian uh, with James Packer. Oh, I didn't realise that. Uh, yeah, it was one of the allegations, all sorts of things, right? Um, so he's got investigations over his head. He gets elected. 
he then forms a coalition with the extreme right mm-hmm. of Israeli politics. So for the first time, he was always, I guess, Netanyahu is a, a centre-right guy, uh, but so determined was he to come back to power that he's now formed a The Donald Trump of coalition. Israel now. <laughs> right. He's formed a coalition with some very, very out there, hardcore, hardline Israeli nationalists um, and, uh, and and Jewish nationalists, if you can, I suppose, put it in those terms, not so secular um, as uh, Israel's tradition has been. Now, the big thing, so that's that's a kind of the headline, the policy that is causing all this uh, dissent and protest is the reform of the Israeli Supreme Court. The complaint from the right is that, well, this is an interventionist activist court. It's, uh, you know, interfering in Israeli politics and going after the primacy of the Israeli legislative system. Now, of course, Israel's parliament is unicameral, i.e. it only has one house, there's no sense. So basically the Supreme Court is seen as possibly really the only check on the power of the parliament in Israel. So they're looking to reform it, basically change the way courts are appointed, the way judges are appointed, also the types of powers or the way whether or not it has essentially veto power over legislative decisions made. Uh, And there's been all kinds of cases around settlements and other things. So that's a big wind-up. But, of course, we've seen huge protests. Now, I can't believe there's a unionist. They called a general strike. Uh, just recently. So basically Israel was shut down. No central services were being attended to. Uh, and the Army Reserve had basically gone on strike too. Now, that's not, not the, the standing army, but the Army Reserve, as I understand it, underpins much of the Israeli Air Force in particular. So this is getting to the point where uh, that um, – the question of whether or not Israel could defend itself in a war, which is a live question at all times mm-hmm. uh, in Israel, uh, it's not as academic as it is perhaps in other parts of the world, uh, was being called into question. So the protests kind of achieved their aim. Then Netanyahu finally comes out and says, okay, we need to pause this law, have a discussion. But, of course, he hasn't really backed down completely. So where's this at? Where's this going? And how concerned should we be? Because a lot of people have been looking at this quite concerned about the future of democracy in Israel. Yeah, this is one of the worst, if not the worst, domestic political crises Israel has ever faced, and mm. which says a lot. And um, and you're right. I mean, this the voice of opposition to this. Well, first, first you give a great summary. I I and I want to link. I want to make sure to link two things you said, which are first the corruption trial that Bibi Netanyahu is currently facing and the fact- It's a lie. That's a critical thing. Yeah, you have to link them. And the fact that he is pursuing this judicial overhaul that would A, allow the executive to oversee all the appointments in the Supreme Court and B, allow the parliament to overturn any ruling from the Supreme Court with a simple majority. And- and the pushback on this, thankfully, by the way, the pushback, you had it first when, and, and he's been trying to do this since December, since he was elected. And you've had hundreds of thousands of people hit the streets. And then in the most recent, why this hit a boiling point now is because he fired his defense minister, who publicly said that this legislation would 
create a national security threat for the reasons you just said. It would hurt their economy. They need their economy strong. They need, because that ties to their strong military and so on and so forth. And, and that's when you've had tens of thousands hit the street again. And these, this strike was huge. Flights were grounded. You're talking about no services in banks, healthcare, um, schools, universities were shut down. Diplomats across the world walked out in their foreign embassies. I mean, huge voice of opposition, which I thought was fantastic, by the way. So Bibi says, I want to avoid civil war. This is a quote. I want to avoid civil war. And so I want to do a dialogue. We'll, we'll dialogue this. And like you said, he'll push it to the summer. And the thing is, I have no, I don't believe he's going to back down. And because so. F- and what a dialogue look like, right? You either do it or you don't. This is the problem, yeah. right? There's no real kind of mid path where you could fudge this particularly. Like he talked about, as I understand it, oh, I want to protect individual rights, you know, which is kind of the concern here and pulling apart the court. Uh, but ultimately he's in a really tough spot because that's why he went quiet for a long time because he had these strikes going on. At the same time, his far-right coalition, unsurprisingly, because they're far-right wingers, are not for turning on these questions, right? They're like, we're in the driver's seat here and we're going to ram this through. And so what do you think? Is it possible that you could see a negotiated outcome here? Because he's almost like on a trying to dance on a, on a needle. No, I, th- I have to be honest. Listen, this is my own view. I really think that he's not going to succeed at this and that if he even succeeds, if he, if he somehow gets this law passed, he won't be able to actually pursue what he wants to pursue. And the reason for that is because Israel's political divisions before this, I mean, for decades has always, have always been so deep. They have multiple parties. They have a multi-party system. They, it's a very volatile system as it is. Before all this, they, their prime ministers are in office for like a year, a year and a half, right? It's, it's because they always have to, they always have to make these coalitions. So the longer this goes, the more I actually think it undermines his effort. And, and it also, it definitely undermines the next election, which of which there is an election like every other day, I find, but in Israel, but the next election, Israelis will think of him as the person who brought the country to the brink only to serve personal gain only so that he could stay out of prison. And right. and that's how serious these allegations are, by the way, and how serious the investigation into him is and these trials. And people see that, you know, they're not, they, they, it's, it's, it's not hidden really that that's why he's pursuing this. That's why he doesn't want to back down. But I really think he's overplaying his card here and that this could really be the end of him in politics in Israel. Or the end of him as prime minister, maybe not in politics, but as leader. Well, it's interesting, right? I mean, he seems... You know, politically unkillable. You know, <laughs> like Trump, I said. Like, like, you know, but like he, like, you know, you go, oh, Trump's almost the same. You know, Silvio Berlusconi's another. Like these yeah, guys yeah, are just like away. zombies. You like, like kind of, they just keep Stay getting forever. back up. They keep getting back up. Mm-hmm. You have right. a lot like that. Um, Daniel Ortega. Right. The it, it, thugs it, in Lebanon you know, go everywhere. <laughs> right. But it's, it's interesting that like th- there seems to be this thing in politics that like, and they tend to be, frankly, on the right side of politics, is that as long as you are uh, uh, a tool of or a loyal servant of whatever particular culture war that is being fought, it doesn't matter. Like if you're the standard bearer, there's nothing that can be leveled against you. And so you've got kind of one side playing by the rules and one side not playing by the rules of what's understood. Um, and it makes politics so dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Uh 
you know, there's no way, you know, in my opinion, I could be proven wrong on this, but parties in established democracies of the left or centre left would tolerate this level of scandal um, in their leader. It would just, they would be gone. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it really is damaging. I mean, there's an interesting demography thing going on here in Israel as well, which is that those who support the secular approach to Israeli democracy uh, tend to be wealthier, the more productive, uh, higher skilled parts of, you know, this is a common thing happening, right? Um, around the world you're seeing this divide between parties that are less increasingly represented by a higher income, higher educated, higher skilled parts of the economy and then those that are uh, more culturally conservative, more economically uh, uh, not as upwardly mobile tend to be part, voting for parties, right? This is a divide, right? But then there's also this issue, um, as it's explained in Israeli politics, which is there's a fear that the religious fundamentalist or far-right nationalists are having more children like, and are growing as a portion of the Israeli democracy. And so it is really challenging to the what is a democracy? How does it look? Because increasingly, what seems to be argued by the 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 uh, the right wing nationalists that are now in power is, so, "Well, we won the election; we should be able to do whatever we want." Now, that's a kind of a tempting argument, right? But those of us who are democracy, um, you know, officiandos, if you want, like majoritarianism is that is what you would call that. Is that just because you're on top, just because you got fifty one percent, does not give you carte blanche to do whatever you want? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's why you have constitutions in place, etc. Otherwise, it's a very dangerous place to go to because you say, well, the majority, of course, could do all kinds of things to minorities. And so this hence in is the push and pull of democracies. <laughs> Elections, of course, should matter and you should be able to have the ability to do things, but not to pull apart the key things that make democracies function, i.e. checks and balances in court systems, checks and balances between the executive, the legislative, um, and also, you know, free media uh, and the the you know preservation of liberties for individuals, preservation of liberties for particular minority groups, etc. Right. So that's the danger there. Um, so it's a real worry. And if you look on a geopolitical basis, Israel's strength around the world when when people often challenge. Those that support Israel say, hey, look at what the Israelis are doing in the West Bank. Look at what the Israelis are doing in Gaza. Aren't they so bad? One of the best things you can say about Israel is, hey, yes, that's true, but they're a democracy. Mm-hmm. If they start to undermine their democratic virtue, then what's the case for Israel? Yeah, by the way, I, it's funny you say this. I had this conversation over the weekend at, at the university about this because I was asked about it. And I said, you know, when they, somebody asked me about U.S. foreign policy toward Israel and why it is how it is. And and I was explaining, they were comparing to other to authoritarian regimes. And I was saying, I was like, you have to understand the difference between how any country approaches a democracy versus an authoritarian regime. And the one thing, ironically, that could end up making U.S. foreign policy toward the United States, which really has not changed at all for decades. I mean, even the talking points are exactly the same. 
it, it ironically might end up being Bibi Netanyahu because if he does find a way to go down this path toward these authoritarian tendencies and undermining the democracy, then U.S. Can, U.S. aid to Israel, already you have this in the public discourse here, that U.S. aid to Israel should not be unconditional. Right now it is not, it is without condition. But if you see right. them going, if you see the government going down these authoritarian ways, and then you can't trust it to take anti-corruption measures, to investigate when there are problems, to, to be fair and representative and, and, and right, then you, you have to be very careful with your aid and, um, and upholding your values. And so this is a very, very risky road for them to go down. And it seems to be honest with you, though, I really do have a genuine, I really genuinely believe that the majority of Israelis see that. Even the, you know, even center right, um, left, the, 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 the way they came out to oppose this in general is, um, right. was astounding. Really, I mean. Yeah, and I think that's always important to remember because, look, I have always been a, a supporter of Israel, particularly uh, given its status as a, an important democracy in the world and in the Middle East, clearly the standard bearer. And it is important to point out that the huge protests, right? So this is being challenged and that's good to see. Um, you know, often when my friends criticise the United States, I say, you know, the biggest critics of the United States are Americans, typically. Mm. <laughs> um, and you know who the biggest critics of uh, the Chinese Communist Party are? Can you name them? Because they're not allowed to be, right? Uh, and so therein lies, I guess, the, the beauty. But, look, it's a really a dangerous place right now for Israel and I really hope they course correct here because Netanyahu for his own selfish reasons, is taking the place off a cliff and hopefully they really can mm -hmm. avert that crisis. But I really worry, look, it's obvious what he's trying to do, but he's cynically unleashing, I think, a culture war here that may be hard to solve. And that's my biggest concern, that they have got this really deep divide there that I, I, I don't know how they square that circle. But anyway, um, we'll never – look – one place I'm sure we're not going to solve uh, the Israel question or Middle East politics is on this podcast. <laughs> no. Um, if you're going to do it, then we can't. Um, now, John Dorries, what's the story? What do you got for us uh, this week? Well, I don't mean to try and stay in the Middle East, but this one, this is coincidence <laughs> and it's possible to leave once you get in there, as you, you know. So it really, that's right. Say, so. You're right. It's You get sucked yeah. in and life in the Middle East is never boring. That's for sure. Um, yeah. But this story is so absurd that I have to share it. And um, so Lebanon, uh, the Lebanese prime minister, announced a delay of daylight savings time by one month. This was a week ago. This was um, March 20th, I believe. Anyway, around a week ago and uh, announced a delay of daylight savings time by a month so that those fa breaking fast for Ramadan could do so earlier. And uh, and so he announces this delay and Christian authorities in Lebanon basically tell him to go pound sand and say that they're going to continue and tell their people to continue to, to move their clocks ahead. And so it the next day. It's technically Lebanese wake up in two time zones. And Lebanon, as most of you probably know, is an extremely tiny country. And to highlight, as it is, Lebanon has, is, uh, it's at a complete political impasse. There's no president. 
which is common for Lebanon, uh, the dysfunction is so high. And this to me, it's like a microcosm, like this small, dumb issue is a microcosm. It highlights how bad and absurd the dysfunction is. And mm. it ended up causing this. It, and it's on, on, and to fall on sectarian lines on top of it. And uh, anyway, the prime minister a week later ended up canceling his delay because it caused such, uh, such a mess. And he accused the people and said, you know, I didn't think, why, like, why are you making it so sectarian? But the fact is that he made it sectarian from the beginning. He made this decision that's something that's usually routine and performa and, and changed it in his own hands because of something sectarian. And it just, it, it you know, to me, I tried to think of, and it, for me as a satirist, it, it came up, I, I, so many jokes that I thought of, right? Like, that like time travel between, you know, once one, you know, one, <laughs> one border of a town to the next or, or, um, that, uh, just, you know, and I, I started to think of, um, stores that would say, you know, like, well, we're on Christian time right now. So, you know, it's not open, <laughs> but, uh, but if you're on Muslim time, then we're open, you know, like this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> this is- it, it, it just sort of shows like one of the things that I just find exhausting and I, actively try to avoid it in my own life is that everything's a bloody culture war. Ugh, yes. Everything is a culture war. It's like, let me find a way to project this relatively not important issue into now a culture war. Even just like AI is a culture war now. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got so many problems with AI. It doesn't <laughs> need to be a culture war, right? Um, but, you know, daylight savings is a funny one because in Australia uh, certain states go into daylight savings and certain states do not. Really? And, uh, right. And Queensland, which is the eastern uh, coast uh, state, it's a very big state. It's in the north. I would describe it, sorry to Queensland listeners, uh, as Australia's Texas. Mm-hmm. And they probably enjoy that, actually. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so you can imagine. And so they say, well, we don't want to have daylight savings time. And some of the arguments that have been leveled over the years are daylight savings times will fade the curtains. For reasons that aren't clear to me, I guess because the like actually fade the, the curtains. Up, well, because the sun will be hitting the curtains at a different time. Not with, anyway. Like, I mean, it's sort of <laughs> it, it somehow changes physics as compared to the way we're measuring time. And the other is that cows won't know what time to get up to be milked. Those uh, cows. It's a shame for anyway, for, for centuries. So, they obviously. <laughs> what would they have done without daylight savings? They'd still be sleeping. Oh, man, listen, I, like that. <laughs> I, I love daylight saving. We're about to change from daylight saving this weekend, and it's always the most miserable day of my life when you lose that additional hour of the evening. Hundred percent. Try having my, kids. It's like daylight savings yeah. for a month. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, do you know? I just got. I corrected. I was on the radio last night. I corrected that it's not daylight savings. It's daylight saving. So I didn't know that until you said it. To be honest with you, I noticed it when you first said it, and I was like, "Wow, have I been saying it the wrong?" Oh, listen, I, listen, I am. Uh, no one will ever beat me in grammatical pedantry. It happened to me live on air and I was appalled. <laughs> so um, so anyway, now you had to do it to I, me. Yeah, so like, <laughs> in. Good to um, know. Yeah, Thank you. My, uh, my John Dory is this deep fake photo of the Pope, <gasps> Pope Francis, rolling down the street in his puffer jacket looking like Kim Kardashian or Drake. Do you mean he's not and, uh, like a rep for Balenciaga now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, it goes viral. Everyone's like, ha, ha, ha. It turns out it wasn't snapped by this guy. It was 
produced by Midjourney, which is an AI app that you basically very easily just go in and say, make me this photo and it, it's made. Um, deeply troubling because this was created by, not by some whiz kid, the app may have been, but it, the, the photo was generated by a 31-year-old construction worker from Chicago. Yeah. And I'm not surprised. Yeah, people go, oh, you can tell it's a deep fake. Well, sure, but it had already gone viral by then, right? Okay, it's relatively harmless. Well, we had photos the week before of Donald Trump being arrested, which were people laughed at because everyone knew they weren't real. Okay, cool. We are, in my opinion, right on the edge here of deep fakes destroying democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I... For those interested in this issue, I've got a column coming out uh, in the Australian Financial Review about this exact question. Um, I have a really good person to put you in touch with if you're interested, by the way. Oh, I love that. Uh, It is. I I think I equate this technology as just as dangerous as nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think it's super dangerous. And and why we're letting a bunch of nerds just create these things and put them out there. Like people weren't splitting the atom in their mum and dad's garage, right? They were doing it under supervision in the Manhattan Project. And I just think that there is this blase attitude that exists amongst the tech sector that, oh, well, you know, just create these tools and see what happens. Like, we've already got a conspiracy theory problem. How hard is it going to be to control this issue where I can see a photo and, and look, at the moment they're kind of produced in a silly way, but you could very easily construct a scenario where it's leaked, a video of someone doing something, and then... It's well, is it real? Is it not real? So now it's out there in the ecosystem, and once it's in the ecosystem, yeah, the media will debunk it, right? Probably mm, takes so takes time. But the problem you got is how successful was the media in debunking the Jan Six conspiracy or the QAnon or the fact that uh, you know the election was stolen? Not very, right? And so the problem with conspiracy theories, I'll say. Well, of course, the media is saying that's not a real video, but I know that that was what Joe Biden did. Joe Biden did X or, uh, you know, DeSantis did this during the primary, you know, like who knows, right? Um, And so there are infinite ways that this technology could be used in a really sophisticated misinformation campaign or even more troubling, what if in, you know, imagine this, uh, you remember Donald Trump's call to the Georgia official that we discussed. Oh, that's not real. That was synthetic. It was generated. You know, there's a term for that. It's called the liar's dividend, where there's so much out there that you question, like so much disinformation that becomes misinformation, that when you have something true, that the liars themselves will often say, well, that's not true. That that chemical weapons attack didn't happen in Syria. Listen, everyone, you're going to see this live on on podcasts. I'm going to include that term in my... Yeah, it's a really good liar's um, dividend. And and there's yeah. a story and I and and I need you to sink like let this sink in because this is this is gonna start happening, mark my words, a lot. There was a video created by a couple of high school punks or middle school punks in Carmel, New York, in a small town, where they had the principal, a video of the principal uh saying racial slurs. And this was a deep fake. This wasn't real. Mm-hmm. The video went viral. It tore the community apart. And for three weeks, it, you know, even like three weeks later is when finally everyone could see that this was a deep fake. But this is, 
Yeah, you could have a video of, it could be you. And it's a, it's a video that is created showing you doing some kind of crime and it doesn't exist. It's fake. And they're so hard. They're so well made, the synthetic media. It's such a danger. It's such a risk. Um, No, it's it's so dangerous. And the thing is, it's out there and open source and anyone can use it. So we just allow, look, we couldn't handle an app or a series of apps designed basically to share our photos with a bunch of family members we don't want to see outside of Christmas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they basically destroyed democracy. And where are we going to get to now in an ecosystem where conspiracy theories are rife, outrage is rewarded, and also humanity is just not trained to understand that what I see with my eyes is not true. You know, George Orwell said, uh, yeah, that the final command of the party in 1984 is don't believe your own eyes or ears. And yet, ironically, we're going to need to do exactly that. Yeah. Um, uh, honestly, I, if you can't tell, listeners and, and Hagar, I'm freaking you're, out about this. You are freaking out. And, but you are right. And I'm freaking out. Because, now, what I'm freaking out about is two things. One is the tech itself and how it can be used. And two is I really hate this blase attitude of the tech sector. Yeah. Oh. That we can just do whatever we want. And, well, okay. So, well, yeah, break it and see what happens. They, they, you know, they stuffed our labor markets with all these stupid apps around uh, you know, Uber, et cetera, around the world. And then, you know, they stuffed our information discourse. Uh, by blowing up the model of traditional media with that, with very little care. So listen, the reason I will, so that we don't depress every listener out there, the reason <laughs> I am not as freaked out as you, even though I think this is super dangerous and super freaky, and I just pray that nothing like this happens to me I personally, um, but is that there are technology companies out there that, at one in particular, and this, and they work to verify videos and photos and more and more it's a lot of like news outlets even things like uber and um well yeah. uber i don't know for sure but like play, even uh, insurance right anything that requires a photo or video they are themselves worried about this issue and as a result they are looking for softwares, software systems and technology to ensure that whatever photo is taken, whatever video is created or made or whatever is authenticated, yeah. that there is a stamp of date and time and, and that it's verified and that there, there it's true. I have to connect you with my friend at TruePic is the company, TruePic. Um, yeah, I, look, I mean, that might be right. But, but the problem is, is that, see, this is moving it's fast. It's a linkage between, well, no, well, there's that, but there's the linkage between, these images and conspiracy. Oh, yeah. And, and, and that is the that is the devil's bargain there, right? Because, yeah, you'll be having the media saying, look, we've had this expert from TruePix say it's not real. Oh, well, I mean, of course they'd say that, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that is the problem. This sludge and poison that is out there and the way that it's going to be used. I mean, look, I don't know if you've ever read it, but there's a, a great book called, uh, uh, what's it called again? Uh, nothing is true and everything is possible. Mm-hmm. And it's about um, modern Russia and the way that they basically use television to kind of just shapeshift their discourse where basically ups, down, blacks, white, everything could be true, but everything's not true and just breeds this cynicism, if nothing else. And and so people just become enormously cynical and, 
And that is really what Putin wants. And so these tools are just available, right? Look at the way they used Facebook in 2016. Anyway, look, in rant. Uh, but I, I am but, the, really the optimist in me believes it's like the system has to get sick before people realize what you, medicine you know, it needs. Up. And they're, I know this is. Hagar, I am, <laughs> anyone knows me, I am like always concerned about things, but I, I'm always kind of like optimistic bias in the sense that I'm like, we'll beat the bad guys because their systems are bad mm-hmm. and people want to be free, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just so alarmed by mm. this. This one has shaken you to your um, core. And you're right to be. I mean, you're right to be. This could affect anybody. Also, anybody. Well, this is it. And it's going to be moving at such a fast pace and generated at such a fast pace, faster than our brains can keep up. Uh, anyway, hope everyone's feeling good at home. Uh, <laughs> yeah. After that. <laughs> We're normally, we're but normally don't worry, everyone. <laughs> These are meant to be fun and funny. Oh, I'm over nothing for you <laughs> if you're looking for fun and funny. Um, anyway, long conversation. We went deeper into things that we normally do. We've gone way over time, but uh, it's, uh, it's been a great conversation. Now, as ever, because you're so generous with your time, please tell us how people can follow you and learn what you're up to uh, outside of my very lengthy and depressing podcast. (laughs) Well, you are very generous to have me. I host a show on YouTube called Oh My World, where I cover the top world news stories and geopolitical events in a fun and easy and satirical way, which means I often dress like world leaders with wigs and bad accents. And I have a lot of fun doing it. And so the whole idea is to raise awareness of these issues in an entertaining way because they really matter. And uh, because I believe that by raising awareness, we affect change for the better. And uh, you can find it on YouTube and of course on so across social media, uh, in particular, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Yes. Yeah. Even though who knows it might get banned soon, but for now. We, we can only yeah. hope. <laughs> um, look, my issues with TikTok are twofold. Um, uh, one being its uh, ownership by the Chinese Communist Party and the fact that it's data harvesting on every single person around the world is silly enough to have it. And secondly, uh, it's brain rush. But it anyway, is, it um, is. Yeah, a little bit. Is, yeah, I mean, a lot maybe. <laughs> How many dancing cat videos can I watch? Anyway, <laughs> I need to go watch some of your videos and cheer myself up, but we'll catch up next time. And uh, bye for now. Thank you. Bye. G'day, Diplomates fans. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you love Hagar as much as I do, make sure you check out her show. It really is quite awesome. And uh, you learn so much in a very few short minutes. Now, after that rather lengthy episode, I'm going to try to keep this short. But um, I've got a question here, as always, uh, from Alicia. Alicia asked me, Misha, was it a mistake for Emmanuel Macron to push through his laws through the parliament? Uh, So I think what Alicia's referring to there is the retirement age laws that uh, Emmanuel Macron essentially jammed uh, through the parliament. I think it goes without saying that it's backfired massively. There's been protests, etc. Um, it's probably never a good idea to try to exercise executive authority the way that he did. <clears throat> but ultimately, um, you know, th- this will be politically damaging for him. So, you know, I think it's a tactical error. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that the French 
the retirement age going from 62, which is quite low in the OECD, to 64. Uh, in Australia, it's 65 going to 67. Um, you know, how big a deal is that? Well, it's a matter for the French people to decide, but I think it's a, a tactical error. Uh, how big a mistake it is politically remains to be seen, but certainly taken a lot of skin off him, and um, I don't think it's helped his reputation. He's already got, I think, a severely diminished reputation uh, across Europe, how he's handled the Ukraine uh, invasion and the French sort of lukewarm support. So maybe, again, this might continue to weaken his leadership, but at the same time, I'm not seeing a better leader in France right now uh, uh, certainly, I don't want to see Marine Le Pen uh, get the gig. Anyway, thanks for the question. Great review of the episode. I'll see you next time. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, producer Jim Mintz.